who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the One Woman Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Grace, and this is the podcast where we talk about all things book-related, author-related, any current events or news going on in the book community, any events going on in my life, any current reads I'm reading, and most importantly, discuss half of our monthly book club pick, which this month is The Only One Left by Riley Sager. I had to change that up. Usually I'm used to saying, and we read a quarter of our monthly book club pick. But for July, if you haven't heard, we are doing a half and half sort of schedule as I know everyone is super busy in the summer, including myself. And I want to leave everyone plenty of time to read the books that are not for the book club and spend time with their family and friends and get the most out of the summer, including myself. So We are just reading one book for July. That is Riley Sager's newest thriller, The Only One Left. And for today's episode, you should have read up to chapter 24, which is just a smidge over the halfway point. And I am so into this book, you guys. I know it's a little early, but I can probably already safely say it's going to be in the high fours, if not a five for me, depending on where these twists go. I am really, really loving it. It is really reminding me of Home Before Dark by Riley Sager. And today, before we get into our book club discussion, I want to talk about my current author ranking by Riley Sager. And then once we finish up The Only One Left for two weeks from today, I will discuss where that fits into the author ranking. I'm already assuming that it's going to be pretty high because like I said, it's giving Home Before Dark vibes and spoiler alert, that is my favorite Riley Sager book. So it's so good. I hope you are all enjoying it. And I have heard from some of you guys that you are enjoying it, which is great. And I've seen all over Bookstar that people are really loving it. And it's really high on their author rankings as well. So super excited, super happy for Riley Sager, such a great thriller author. 
Happy July, everyone. We're in the middle of summer now, and I can finally say we're getting some decent weather here in Maine. Knock on wood, because things have been so crazy. Like that was the rainiest June I have ever experienced. I feel like in my whole 28 years of life, I don't know. I'm looking ahead and there's there's a lot of rain. There's a lot of rain coming, but that's okay. Um, it's going to be a beautiful Friday today. I'm recording this on Friday, July 7th, which is also Speak Now Taylor's version day to all who celebrate. I'm super excited about it. I woke up really, really early this morning, like 545 and listened. I'm not one of those people that can stay up till midnight and then listen to the whole thing. I need to get a good night's rest, went to sleep a little bit after 10 and then woke up before my alarm even at like 545 and was like, it's speaking out Taylor's version day. So I've listened to a good majority of it. I definitely listened first to the six volt tracks. Um, If you're not a Taylor Swift fan, I'm sorry, but this is just something that we go through every <laughs> every time she releases anything new. Um, I listened to the vault tracks and then I listened to all the original, you know, the songs from original Speak Now, um, my favorites. Didn't listen to all of them. I don't know why I said that. I listened to my faves. Um, so like Last Kiss, Enchanted, Dear John, Hours, Long Live, Haunted, Back to December. Um, and I still need to do a and Sparks Fly, which I really, really liked. Still need to do a whole listen. I'm planning on going for a walk this afternoon and listening to the whole thing. So that's on my to-do list. But so far, I really enjoyed it. Speak Now, I have really, really high standards for, though, because it is my all-time favorite Taylor Swift album. Like, nothing else even comes close. It's essentially like a no-skip album for me. It came out when I was 15, and 13 years later, I'm 28. Like, I remember the day Speak Now came out. Um, I remember the day that she released the track listing for it and was releasing singles like Back to December. Um, My friends and I just went absolutely crazy for it. At 15, being 15 when Speak Now came out was just magical. And like listening to some of them again this morning, like knowing that she's grown up now singing these songs, it was really emotional. I actually went on a long walk yesterday and listened to Speak Now, the original version. Um, also just to kind of hear those songs again. And it's just so, so good. I just love it so much. So really happy. It's super fun. I really do like the vault tracks. Something that was really cool when she released the track listing. I'm also I think I've mentioned this like a massive Fall Out Boy fan. That was like my middle school years, like obsessed with Fall Out Boy, still love Fall Out Boy. Um, so when I saw that she was doing a like literal collab with them, I almost died. And it's really good. I really like Electric Touch. Then when I saw she was doing a song called When Emma Falls in Love, my heart nearly broke because when this album came out, my best friend at the time was named Emma and she was actually going through a heartbreak. And so like this album was like really quintessential through all of that. And like if this song had come out back then, this would have like annihilated us. Um, I love When Emma Falls in Love. I love I Can See You. Love the Paramore collab. Really, really good vibes all around. And it's just a great day to be a Swifty and a girl because also (laughs) this is maybe too niche, but I'm watching the UK Love Island and... If you are watching, you'll get what I'm saying. But basically, it's the Casa Amor episodes. And if you know, you know, I don't want to spoil anything because I know from personal experience how hard it is to keep up with Love Island. It's kind of crazy, but it's a great season, you guys. If you're into it at all, it's super fun to put on like while you're working. Sorry, I'm going to take a sip of coffee. 
It's the type of show where like, yes, there are long, 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 boring bits. It comes out five days a week in the UK. So like, of course, they can't have the drama every single day. But it's so fun when it is fun. And this is a great season so far. And last season, I remember not really enjoying until Casa Amor. Um, so I'm just I'm into it. The Casa Amor episode that I've really been waiting for came out this morning. So listen to Speak Now Taylor's version. Watch the Casa Amor first episode of Love Island. So I am just feeling really, really good today. It's going to be a great weekend and a great week. So let's talk about I've read two books so far this month in July since we've last spoken, which is great because I'm finally reading some books that I can chat about and I have some opinions if you guys are interested. So the two books I read were Yellowface by R.F. Kuang and The Dinner by Herman Coach interesting, totally like different vibes and different opinions. So we're going to start out with talking about Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang. Um, this was actually one of the books that I had given you guys as a choice to choose from for the July Book Club. And this one actually got a decent amount of votes, but I had already purchased the book and I was like, I'm going to read this regardless if we choose it for the book club pick, because it just sounds so good. And it was really, really good and intriguing. So if you're not really sure what Yellow Face is, let me give you guys a little bit of the synopsis and then I'll give you guys um, my rating and what I thought of it. Authors June Hayward and Athena Liu were supposed to be twin rising stars same year at Yale, same debut year in publishing, but Athena's a cross-genre literary darling and June didn't even get a paperback release. Nobody wants stories about basic white girls, June thinks. So when June witnesses Athena's death in a freak accident, she acts on impulse. She steals Athena's just-finished masterpiece, an experimental novel about the unsung contributions of Chinese laborers to the French and British war efforts efforts during World War One. So what if June edits Athena's novel and sends it to her agent as her own work? So what if she lets her new publisher rebrand her as Juniper Song, complete with an ambiguously ethnic author photo? Does this piece of history deserve to be told, whoever the teller? That's what June claims, and the New York Times bestseller list seems to agree. But June can't get away from Athena's shadow, and emerging evidence threatens to bring June's stolen success down around her. It's super, super cool. And really, unlike any other book I've read, it felt really authentic and just like littered with all of this like tea and gossip about what it's like to be in like the literary world and like the publishing world. I rated it somewhere between a 3.5 and a 4. I, I would say definitely read it and it, it's getting a ton of hype right now. And I've heard it's great on audio. I rounded up to a 4 on Goodreads. And I do think it deserves a 4. But it's not like perfect. It's not my favorite. It's my first RF Kuang book and it won't be my last. Very true. The writing was incredibly fresh and tantalizing and I couldn't put it down. Our main character, as many have pointed out, is entirely selfish and truly insufferable for the majority of the book. When I started to even feel for her a little bit, she did something that made me like loathe her again. I think that definitely is part of the fun of the book, but her lack of regard for anyone but herself was really hard to read at points. Then there's Athena, the woman who dies, who we're supposed to feel for, especially after her death because of the plagiarism that Juniper used. However, we learn a lot about her own character throughout the novel and how she often plagiarized others' work herself or other people's stories. And so I didn't like love her as a character either, but enjoyed 
overall reading about the complexities of the publishing industry. And personally, I'd be curious to hear how realistic it is from an author or literary agent's actual perspective. I think the plot of this book is really unique and intriguing, truly from page one. However, it won't be an all-time favorite for me because of how much the characters really frustrated me. It is definitely fast-paced. It is nail-biting drama, and it'll make you want to rip your hair out. It is really fun really, really unique. Um, And I would definitely give it a try if it sounds at all interesting to you. When I heard the blurb, like from that first sentence, like about the two literary people, about the two writers, I don't know why I said literary people, the two writers, how one of them died and the other stole their work and is basically like playing that she's someone that she's really not. I was really intrigued um, just from hearing that bit of the plot. And it is really good. I finished it in like a day and a half. Um, Couldn't put it down. I thought it was so unique and a really, really cool take on a thriller. So really enjoyed that one. And then last night, I finished a book called The Dinner by Herman Koch. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. I really, really disliked it. So this is a book when I started my bookstagram in 2021. If you're not following it, I'm sure you are, but it's at Grace's Reading Nook on Instagram. When I started that in 2021, this was a book that I had seen like on people's bookstas and on like TikTok and things. And I was like, okay, I'm going to grab it. And so I picked it up probably from like Goodwill or Bull Moose or something, but it's been on my TBR shelf for literally two years. And it's been one that I'm like, okay, I'm going to read it. I'm going to finally pick it up because the premise sounds really, really interesting, which I'll read for you if you're not familiar. But it's been one that's been continuously like pushed back and pushed back on my TBR as like new books come to light. I mean, it's one that I've wanted to pick up. but just never have. And then I was on TikTok, as always, I'm constantly on TikTok. And I saw like a couple of book talkers talking about how this is like the perfect twisty turny book for summer. And I was like, you know what, it's a short book, it's under 300 pages, let me pick it up, let me just see what all the hype's about. And it was really bad. (laughs) I really, really didn't like it. They also turned it into a movie with Richard Gere, and I think Julie Lenning, Um, Okay, before I give my full opinion, let me read you guys what the plot is. And I think you're going to see why I wanted to read it. This darkly suspenseful, highly controversial tale of two families struggling to make the hardest decision of their lives all over the course of one meal. It's a summer's evening in Amsterdam and two couples meet at a fashionable restaurant for dinner. Between mouthfuls of food and over the polite scrapings of cutlery, the conversation remains a gentle hum of polite discourse, the banality of work, the triviality of the holidays, but behind the empty words, terrible things need to be said, and with every forced smile and every new course, the knives are being sharpened. Each couple has a 15-year-old son. The two boys are united by their accountability for a single horrific act, an act that has triggered a police investigation and shattered the comfortable, insulated world of their families. As the dinner reaches its culinary climax, the conversation finally touches on their children. As civility and friendship disintegrate, each couple show just how far they're prepared to go to protect those they love. Tautly written, incredibly gripping, and told by an unforgettable narrator, the dinner promises to be the topic of countless dinner parties debates, skewering everything from parenting values to pretentious menus to political convictions. This novel reveals the dark side of genteel society and asks and asks what each of us would do in the face of unimaginable tragedy. <sighs> okay, guys, I'm going to be like scathing a little bit. And I'm really sorry if you enjoyed this book or if it's like your favorite book or something. But this was such a slog to get through. So I went to the beach the other evening and I started reading this book and it was okay at first. It was kind of a unique narrator. Didn't know if I should trust him. I love an unreliable narrator, 
but it just kept getting worse and worse. This was like a 2.5 to a 2 for me. Let me read my review because I just finished it last night and I think it says it all. This book was nearly insufferable. It's been on my TBR for years and after seeing some recent hype about it on TikTok, I decided to give it a go. While it's a short book and I flew through it, that was mostly because I wanted it to be over with. I contemplated putting it away 100 pages in when nothing had happened to move the plot along but decided to trudge through. Side note, literally, you guys. I posted on my Instagram yesterday when I was a little over 100 pages in and I was like, does this book get any better? And the vast majority of you says it does not. But a couple of you said it did. So I continue to read it. Yeah, nothing when I mean like nothing had happened, like nothing, nothing had happened about like the tantalizing plot like this crazy dinner of like drama, none of it. And that's um, almost halfway through just saying. Characters for me can really make or break a book. But that's not to say an unlikable character will ruin a book for me. But these characters, like I said at the start of this review, insufferable. Paul was one of the most evil and narcissistic characters I've ever read, and he's our our narrator. Does that make it a little fun? Yes. But not in any way, shape, or form did I enjoy any of the things he did, and Claire, his wife, might have just been as bad, if not worse. And the act that occurs as the catalyst for this whole dinner was truly horrific, you guys. Beyond that, this book was incredibly boring. It was a slog to read the flashback chapters because in all honesty, I just didn't care about the characters. They were all evil with ulterior motives to only help themselves. The dialogue felt stilted and unnatural. The setting and description of foods was monotonous and unrealistic. The only savior was some of Paul's dialogue as we found out more and more about what happened between the two sons. The plot itself was interesting, but way too lost in the terrible narration. Overall, you can absolutely skip this one. I do not see the hype. Um, And it has a 3.22 overall rating on Goodreads with 152,000 ratings and 18,000 reviews. And yeah, it's a love or hate. It's a really um, polarizing sort of book. I it was really, really hard to get through. And I'm kind of sad that I wasted a bit of time reading a book that I don't even want to continue reading. But that's okay. It's fine. Um, I read it, I can add it to the list for this year, and I can put it off a backlist TBR. But I don't feel the need to convince any of you to read that one. So I have a few books on my TBR for the rest of July. I want to read Wrong Place, Wrong Time by Jillian McAllister, The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan, and Modern Lovers by Emma Straub, um, which has been on my TBR forever. But I think it's going to get eclipsed. I think all of those might get eclipsed by three books that I bought at Bull Moose yesterday. I've been pretty good. I'm going to be completely honest. I've been pretty good about not buying books um, and trying to read the ones I already have, but I feel I felt like an itch yesterday. So I was at Bull Moose a few weeks ago and I saw a book called Mrs. Nash's Ashes, which I thought was just like a really silly name. But I read the synopsis and it sounded really, really interesting. And I was like, oh, I'll wait. It's by Sarah Adler, who wrote The Dead Romantic. No, she didn't. Who? What did Sarah, Sarah Adler write? Is that it? Oh, this is her first book. Okay, cool. But I I read the synopsis and it sounded really good. But I'm like, okay, I can wait. Like I have a lot of romances on my plate right now. Like I can hold off. But then it's like getting this huge sweeping resurgence, not resurgence, I guess, but just a lot of hype right now on Bookstagram. So I wanted to pick that up, which I did. So I'm really excited about that. Then I picked up the seven year slip. God, I can't remember authors. What's wrong with me? 
This Ashley Poston, and she wrote The Dead Romantic. Sorry, that's where I was getting confused. That was a good Morning America book club pick. I'm not sure what month, but I have heard great things about it as well. It's another romance. And then I was just going to get those two. And then I this book caught my eye by the cover. And if you look up the cover, it's incredible. It's called Dead Eleven by Jimmy Giuliano. And it caught my eye and the blurbs caught my eye because Richard Chismar blurbed it on the back and said it was amazing. Anna Reyes from the House in the Pines blurbed it. R.L. Stein blurbed it. And when I read the synopsis, I was like, this sounds so good. So Grady Hendrix like. And I read a little bit of the author's note at the beginning. And just from reading the author's note, I was like, yep, okay, I'm in. I have not seen much hype about this, but I am going to read you a little bit because it sounds really good. It says on a creepy island where everyone has a strange obsession with the year 1994, my birth year, a newcomer arrives hoping to learn the truth about her son's death, but finds herself pulled deeper and deeper into the bizarrely insular community and their complicated rules. Clifford Island. When Willow Stone finds these words written on the floor of her deceased son's bedroom, she's perplexed. She's never heard of it before, but soon learns it's a tiny island off of Wisconsin's Door County Peninsula, 200 miles from Willow's home. Why would her son write this on his floor? Determined to find answers, Willow sets out for the island. After a few days on Clifford, Willow realizes this place is not normal. Everyone seems to be stuck in a particular day in 1994. So I'm going to read because I don't want to hear anymore. How good does that sound? Okay, like gorgeous cover, amazing synopsis, great blurbs, and that's going to be my next read. That's what I love. Like I I feel like recently have been really sucked into getting reviews and recommendations from like Bookstra and BookTok and not really going off of my own gut. But I saw this book and I read the inside cover and I was like, it just sounds so good. Did not go on Goodreads. The Goodreads are pretty good for it. It does not have many reviews, but because it doesn't have many reviews, it might have swayed me to not read it in the past few months. But I'm sick of that. I'm I'm really itching to go to Barnes & Noble. I still have some um, gift cards from my birthday and Christmas from December. So I'm really dying to go to Barnes & Noble soon. If any of you know when the buy one, get one 50% off hardcover sale is, let me know because that's when I want to go, but I'm probably going to go soon anyway. And I want to go and just let the books guide me. Like I just want to get books that sound good to me and not let good reads or reviews sway me. That's my plan. That's what I'm aiming for more of for the rest of this year. Um, just reading what I love and what sounds good to me. So that's what's going on with my current reads. I want to briefly talk about book of the month. Um, and by briefly, I mean very brief because I actually skipped my book of the month box this month, which doesn't happen very often. But I just didn't love what we had for choices. So two books that are in my cart that I can't get because I didn't like any of the main book of the month choices this month. Um, The Wishing Game by Meg Schaefer. I have just heard amazing things and it's a book about books, which is something I really love. Then I also have My Murder by Katie Williams. Um, Just sounds like a really unique thriller, sort of magical realism type of book, but dark. Um, two books I really want, but they're both add-ons, so I cannot choose them. What they chose for the July selections this month were The Connollys of County Down by Tracy Lang. As we all know, I loved this book and I loved We Are the Brennans. And if I didn't get an advanced reader copy of this, I would have chosen it for sure. Then there was Dark Corners by Megan Golden. This is a thriller that's getting a decent amount of hype right now. She read she wrote The Night Swim which I actually own, but haven't read. I believe I own The Night Swim. Anyway, I'm just, I'm not in the mood for that sort of thriller right now. Like I'm not in a, not in a, like a, 
I just want to read like really, really good thrillers. And I haven't heard a ton about Megan Gold. And I know that sounds bad. And I'm sure this is great. But I have so many thrillers on my cart and in my TBR that I just want something a little deeper right now. The First Ladies by Mary Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. Um, sounds okay. It's, you know, two, it says two brilliant women, a first lady and civil rights leader become friends and agents of progress for a changing nation. But it's really long. It's 400 plus pages. I'm sure this is a great book. And I'm interested to see to see how people review it. But it just didn't feel like something I needed right now. Then there was another Catherine Center book called Hello Stranger. She's a romance author. It's her fourth time in a book of the month box, which is amazing for her. I have never read a Catherine Center book. And I had other romances on my TBR, and I kind of want to read her other ones first um, before choosing a new one. Then there was a fantasy called Immortal by Chloe Gong. Um, is it, oh, no, it's Immortal Longing. Sorry, it's called Immortal Longings by Chloe Gong. And she's also a three-peat author for Book of the Month. But as we all know, fantasy is a genre that is a hit or a miss for me. So it wasn't my first choice. So it just it wasn't up my alley if you did do a July box for book of the month. Let me know. I'm really curious to know what you got. I hope some of you got the Connellys of County Down because it's really, really good if you like a family based drama like that. Um, but I'm curious to see what they do for August. If you haven't ordered a July box yet and any of those sound good to you, um, go to the link in my bio at my Instagram at Grace's Reading Nook and you will find a link to get your first book from book of the month for $5. Um, As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, Newsmakers, I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. But that is book of the month for this month. And I'm not sure if celebrity book clubs have all come out with their choices for July. But let me take a quick peek. So Reese's July book club pick is Yellow Face by RF Kuang. No need to talk about that any further, but super, super exciting that she picked it. Um, I think that's going to be a great choice. 
And I actually saw on Instagram that Emily booked up one of my favorite bookstagrammers was talking about how she was really surprised that it hadn't gotten picked up by a major book club yet. So really cool. The Good Morning America book club pick is Save What's Left by Elizabeth Castanello. And I have not heard of it. So let's talk about it a little bit. Um, They said the Unbeach Read is a comic novel that follows a woman fulfilling her dream of owning a beach house, only to discover that life in a beach town is nothing like the fantasy she had envisioned. Welcome to the picturesque beach town of Whitby, where one woman comes looking for her dream home only to find herself in the midst of a nightmare with her neighbors. When Kathleen Dean's husband, Tom, tells her he's no longer happy with his life and wants a divorce, Kathleen is confused. They live in the Midwest. They've been married 30 years. Who said anything about being happy? As Tom travels the globe in search of fulfillment, Kathleen starts to think about what she wants. And her thoughts lead her to a small beach community on Long Island that has always looked lovely in the holiday cards her childhood best friend's every year. But soon Kathleen will discover that nothing on Whitby is quite what she expected, including herself. That sounds really, really cute. That sounds like a really cute beach read um, and something I would definitely pick up. Um, it sounds really cute. Let me know if you guys would pick it up. But I love a beach read like that. And I also dream of owning a beach home like who doesn't. And Read with Jenna came out with hers and their July book club pick is Banyan Moon by Tao Tai, which I've actually talked about as a book of the month club pick. Um, I think last month. Um, and I own it. So that's really cool. I'm happy to see that she picked it up. And I think I've talked about it a little bit. But basically, it's a debut novel. It's a story of three generations of Vietnamese American women as they grapple with the death of their matriarch men. The story spans decades and continents from 1960s Vietnam to the wild swamplands of the Florida coast. So I'm really excited to read that one. I think I already talked about it. But the cover is absolutely stunning. So I think that I will pick that up. Very cool. Three choices that were interesting and two that were already on my radar, one that I've already read and one that's fresh to me. Those are the book clubs that I follow anyway. Okay, I've been talking for a long time and I think it's about time that we start talking about our July book club pick, The Only One Left by Riley Sager. So if you are not up to chapter 24 in the book, do not listen if you do not want spoilers because we are going to be talking about a lot of things that have happened up to this halfway point. Um, If you don't care about spoilers and you just want to listen along anyway, that's cool, but just know things might get spoiled for you. As always, we're going to start with my own personal notes chapter by chapter. And I did have a chance to ask you guys some questions about what you thought about the book so far over on my Instagram at Grace's Reading Nook. So after I go through my own thoughts, we will talk about what you all thought um, as well. So let's dig right in with the prologue. And before we get started, I realized that I haven't given my current Riley Sager author ranking. And just really briefly, the hashtag author ranking was created by my fave girl on Booksta, Emily Booked Up. So she gave us all these wonderful ideas to start this author ranking thing. Um, But I did this June 16th of last year after I read The House Across the Lake. So let me give you guys my ranking. Number one, as I already talked about, Home Before Dark. Number two is Final Girls. Number three is The Last Time I Lied. Number four is Lock Every Door. Then I would say number five is House Across the Lake. And number six is Survive the Night. So this is his seventh book. I have read all of his other books, which is really cool. It's one of the only authors that I've done like that. 
But I will say, too, I didn't love Lock Every Door. I see Lock Every Door at the top of, like, everyone's Riley Sager author ranking, and it's just not that way for me for some reason. Um, I did really enjoy it, but it is number four, I want to say. I'm, I still need to think about that a little bit if I want to do House Across the Lake or Lock Every Door first, but I think it would go Home Before Dark, Final Girls, The Last Time I Lied, Lock Every Door, The House Across the Lake, and then Survive the Night. So let's see where the only one left ends up ranking, and let's get into the prologue now. All right, so to start out the book, we have Lenora telling who I presume to be Kit about what happened to her parents and sister the night that they were murdered. I'm one to believe already that Lenora didn't do it and that there's way more to the story here. But if she did do it, she probably had a very good reason. We don't know much yet, obviously, in the prologue, but Riley Saker has been putting more and more absurd twists in his book lately. So I'm curious what this one is going to be. Then we move into chapter one. We're starting the book off with Kit getting the assignment to take care of Lenora Hope. Apparently, Kit was a home health aide for 11 years, but then did something to disgrace the company and had to take an extended break. Kit doesn't want to take the job caring for Lenora, especially because it means living in her house, but she takes it because she's desperate after being unemployed for months. Lenora's family was murdered 54 years ago, and everyone in town thinks it was Lenora who did it. In chapter two, we get more clues into who Kit is. So we're in the 80s because we find out it's, you know, Reagan's presidency. And she seems to be 31 years old if she's sleeping with the boy next door who's 20 and she's 11 years older than him. Clearly, her life has been off track and she needs a change of of pace, though I'm sure taking care of Lenora Hope is not her number one choice. It's clear her mother died, I think I said at this point, based on phrases like my father is dating again. And I asked, is this a recent death? Is it possible that Kit had something to do with it? I'm thinking maybe drunk driving or maybe something to do with blurring lines with the caregiver or their family. We'll have to wait and see. I was off there, clearly, but I like the sleuthing. In chapter three, Kit arrived at Hope House. We learn it's been a place of mystery her whole life and that it's in Bar Harbor, Maine, a place that I have been many times. I went to school at the University of Maine in Orono for two years. Bar Harbor is pretty close to there. If you have never been, it is beautiful. Absolutely love it there. When she arrives, she meets a handsome groundskeeper named Carter. And I wouldn't put it past Riley Sager if Carter himself was actually a ghost. Just saying. Then she enters the house and meets the housekeeper, Mrs. Baker, who definitely has a spooky vibe to her as well. And in chapter four, Mrs. Baker and Kit start having a conversation about Kit's family and life. And Kit reveals already why she was put on temporary leave, which is something I didn't see coming. What she tells Mrs. Baker is that she gave a patient in terrible pain from cancer one dose of fentanyl and then went to bed. When she woke in the morning, she realized she forgot to put the bottle away and all of the pills were gone. She says she did not give all the pills to the patient and that she probably took them all to end her life somewhat peacefully. However, at the end of the chapter, she says she wasn't telling the truth. Why would she end up killing that patient if that's the case? Mrs. Baker alludes to Hope House taking in women who have been wrongly accused of crimes. What was Mrs. Baker's? And what about Jessica, the girl with the colorful hair and the bracelets? In chapter five, I said, okay, I'm going to throw an insane theory out there because why not? Do we think there could be some ghosts at play here? That Mrs. Baker and Archibald are actually Lenora Hope's mother and father and their ghosts trapped in the house? 
or potentially that nobody ever died and they've been alive forever. Why can't Lenora ever leave the house? She hasn't been outside in decades, and Mrs. Baker said that she was born in the house and she will die in this house. Are they holding her hostage, potentially from telling the truth of what truly happened that night? And why do they all have to wear the old-fashioned uniforms? Is it to keep Lenora from going crazy? I don't know, but Lenora seems happy that Kit is her new caregiver for some reason. And clearly from the typewriter scenes we keep getting, she's ready to tell her truth about that night, whether or not it's the actual truth or not. And after reading the typewriter part in this chapter, I'm left wondering what is up with Lenora's sister, Virginia. Is it possible Lenora isn't really Lenora and that she's really her sister, Virginia? She keeps referring to her as her sister and never by her first name. I don't know, just something to think about, but I'm curious to hear more about what happened before the murders from Lenora's point of view. Then I took notes for chapters six and seven. At the end of chapter seven, we get a bombshell that I honestly was thinking might be the case, but I didn't write it down. That Kit says that everyone thinks she killed her mother. I'm guessing she's about to tell the story of how the woman she gave fentanyl to was her mom, and maybe she did give her too many on purpose to put her out of her misery. And so crazy, we will have to see. In chapter six, Mrs. Baker basically goes over everything needed to take care of Lenora. She says that she doesn't do anything for fun except listen to books on tape recorded by Jessica. I also haven't mentioned Lenora's disability from her strokes and polio, but her left arm is the only thing she has control over and she cannot speak. But she can use the typewriter, as we know, though Kit says she types about a word a minute. Then I thought, how long does it take her to write those long paragraphs then? This must be taking the girls all day. In chapter eight, Kit then retells the story of her mother's overdose and sticks to her guns that she did not purposely leave the medication out. I'm personally not so sure about that, but we will have to wait and see. Her own father doesn't even believe her, which is why their relationship is so strained. Honestly, maybe her mother and her were in on it together, some sort of a suicide pact, I'm not sure, and she's keeping her mother's secret, too, of wanting to die. In Lenora's typewriter story, we learn about her birthday dinner and how her sister was flirting with Peter the whole time Peter works in the house. Could Mrs. Baker and Archibald be Peter and Virginia? Just saying. She then goes upstairs to see her mother, and her mother is bedridden and not well and has been sick really ever since marrying her father. But even her mother doesn't call her Lenora, and I'm starting to get more suspicious that the woman writing and the woman that Kit is taking care of is Virginia, or at least not Lenora. In chapter nine, Jesse gives Kit a tour of Hope's End, most specifically where Evangeline and Winston, Lenora's mother and father, and Virginia, Lenora's sister, died. They keep saying that Lenora hung Virginia with a rope, but what if she hung herself? Honestly, it just doesn't seem possible for like Lenora to hang her sister, especially with what we find out towards the end of the chunk that we read. We're also not being told the difference in ages between Lenora and Virginia. I thought, what if they were twins? That would prove my theory even further that Virginia is actually Lenora and vice versa. Maybe I've missed their ages, but it's something to think about. I'm enjoying the character of Jessie and her lightheartedness that she's adding. It's also nice for Kit to have someone to talk to. In chapter 10, Lenora tells Kit via the typewriter that she wants to tell her everything, which we know because we're already getting those typed entries. In the latest one, Lenora describes seeing her father have sex with a servant in the house. 
I also realized at this point very quickly that Lenora and Virginia couldn't be twins because that day they were celebrating Lenora's birthday and not Virginia's. But other than those things, not much else happens in that chapter. In chapters 11 and 12, I forgot to mention in the last chapter that Kit finds all of Mary Milton's things in her room. Um, and Mary Milton was the caretaker of Lenora and she abruptly left, which is why Lenora needed a new caretaker. But all of her clothes, her books, her medical bag, etc., was all still in Kit's room. And why would she leave all of that there if she didn't have any intention of coming back? Is it possible she's being held somewhere in the house? Then Kit wakes up and hears footsteps going into Lenora's room and all around it. But when she goes in, it's just Lenora sleeping in bed. Is Virginia still alive and being held in the house? Is it possible it's Virginia's ghost? Mrs. Baker denied everything in the morning, but is it possible that she could have been in her room? In chapters 13 and 14, we get a little bit of information on how Lenora is typing all the capital letters and special characters, which I was confused about, and Kit is the one that's helping her, basically. Now, Kit is wondering if Lenora sees her as a kindred spirit, but not for the reason she wants. She thinks Lenora may be guilty, too, and Lenora thinks that she is guilty, too. Then we learn from Carter that he thinks the groundskeeper at the time, Ricardo, killed the whole family. Ricardo was the only service member who was at the house the night of the murders. Even his wife, who also worked at the house, Beatrice, was out. And yet when the police showed up, he was gone and was never seen again. What could that mean? Where is Ricardo? Kit immediately goes to Lenora's room and has her type out who Ricardo is. And it seems to me like we're going to get a bit of a love story here. Also, when Kit was exploring the terrace, she saw a gray figure in Lenora's window. And could that be Victoria's ghost? Not Victoria, sorry, Virginia. In chapters 15 and 16, Kit heard more noises in the middle of the night and again goes to Lenora's room to investigate, but finds nothing. Even if Lenora could walk and she's hiding that, she... And even if she was walking around, she's way too old to be able to spring back into bed very quickly when Kit would walk into the room. In the morning when Kit asks who's been in her room, Lenora says it's Virginia. Are we to suspect it's Virginia's ghost or maybe Mrs. Baker? This is all just so crazy. There are truly so many theories to go with here. It's also confirmed by Lenora in the writings that she formed a love affair with Ricky eight months before her parents and sister's death. There is so much going on, but I am truly loving it. I have no idea where it's going. And in chapter 18, we have a bombshell. Mary Milton is dead. When I read that, my jaw dropped. I did not see it coming. I don't know if you guys did, but I loved that twist. After Kit calls Mr. Gerlane to ask for a new assignment and he tells her no, she steps out onto the balcony to contemplate how bad her life has gotten to be where she is in this horror house. That's when she sees the hand, foot, and head of Mary Milton. In chapter 19, Detective Vic, of all people, is the one investigating Mary's death. He seems to be convinced it was a suicide because she had a note in her pocket. What could the note possibly say? As we know from reading a lot of thrillers, just because she had a note doesn't mean it was a suicide. And I'm not sure if I talked about this in my notes, but we did find out later that the note said, I'm not who you think I am. Please forgive me or something like that. And it was typed out, which I think guys, proves my theory even more that maybe Lenora typed that out and she's saying she's not who we think she is, like she's not Lenora. I feel like that's a really, really good theory to kind of delve into a little bit. Also, I want to talk about the fact, which I don't think I talked about in my notes, that Detective Vic worked at Hope House when he was a kid in 1929 and it said that he had the day off that day too when the murders happened. 
I don't know, this could be really, really out there, but is it possible that Detective Vic is either Peter or Ricardo and he just changed his name and he's been so obsessed with like Kit and all of this stuff because he was somehow involved in the murders? That's all I'm saying. Then I wrote, as we know, Lenora has a typewriter. Could she have written the note? I'm dying to see what happens next. In chapter 20, Detective Vic goes up to see Lenora with Kit by his side. And as he's asking her questions, Kit realizes it'd be easier if Lenora could type her questions with the typewriter. But when she tries to, Lenora plays dumb like she can't type, ruining Kit's reputation with the detective even more. Then once he leaves, Lenora begins typing her love story with Ricky, who was married to Beatrice, but it didn't seem to matter. Is it possible that they ran away together and what happened to Ricky? Okay, then I was at the beach as I was reading the final part of this and I just read right through without taking notes. So I said, we finished out this half and I am just left wanting to know so much more. Let me start by saying I am absolutely loving this and halfway through, I can already tell it's going to be at the top of my Riley Sager ranking. At the end, we found out that Lenora was pregnant with Ricky's baby and that the old housekeeper, Tony, found that out by finding a picture of Lenora pregnant. But again, no, nothing outright says that it was Lenora and not her sister. Is it possible the woman upstairs is really Virginia and she has those injuries from being hung by Lenora, but she survived and then killed Lenora? Also, who killed Mary? Carter thinks that he might be the grandson of Lenora because his own father was left on a church stoop around the same time Lenora would have given birth. And they were on the verge of doing blood tests. Mary was in on it with him. And then that day was the day that she went missing. And then we find out died. There is just so much going on. There are so many theories. My biggest one being something to do with Virginia. I think there's a lot to say with that suicide note that it said, I'm not who you think I am. Is it possible that that's from Carter, Detective Vic? Is it from Lenora? Is it from Virginia? Is it from Mrs. Baker? Is Mrs. Baker Virginia? Is there actually some sort of, you know, ghost stuff at play? Or is it cut and dry, nothing spooky, but there's still a lot of twists to come? I am loving it. So let me go into the questions that I asked you guys um, for this um, part right here. So the first thing that I ask and that I always ask is where are you in the book? 10% of you said you're up to chapter 24 for Monday's episode. I hope as you're listening to this episode that you are caught up to chapter 24, but that's okay. 20% said you're reading ahead. 30% said that you started, but you were not up to chapter 24 yet. And 40% of you said that you haven't started it yet or are not reading. So I think that we're all on the same page that summer is a busy time for all of us. So I'm hoping that by Monday, it'll give you guys some more time to read. The next question I asked is, would you have taken the job if you were Kit? And we got a 50-50 response. 50% said yes. 50% said no. Obviously, in my own opinion, I would not have wanted to take the job, but I am pretty... um, money hungry. (laughs) Like if I had not had a job for that long, I would be pretty nervous um, about where my next paycheck was coming from. So I'm sure I would take the job very, very hesitantly and then also be looking for more work on the side. She's a caretaker and I'm sure that that sort of business is maybe hard to come by or those sorts of jobs are hard to come by in the 80s in, you know, this part of Maine. But I think that she could easily even go back to school for nursing or do something. But I would want to get out of my dad's house, especially if he suspected that I had something to do with my mom's death. I'd want to get out of that house. And I feel like that's your only way out, especially if Mr. Gerlain said there was no other way you were going to get any other job. So that's just my opinion. And it seems like you guys grappled with that one as well. 
Then I asked, do you think Kit had more to do with her mom's death than she is letting on? 93% of you said yes, 7% said no. I agree. There's definitely something really fishy going on there, but I'm not sure what it is. I don't think we can trust Kit as much as we are. I'm not sure if there's going to be some weird twist with her, um, but it just seems like kind of odd. Like, is it possible she wanted to take this job all along because she wanted to hear more about Lenora and the Hope murders? I just don't know. It does seem a little bit fishy, but honestly, my brain is blank for what it could possibly be. Then I asked, what do you guys think actually happened to Mary Milton? Someone said, definitely think that she was pushed, unsure who did it, Mrs. Baker, but maybe that's too obvious. I agree. I think that Mrs. Baker is a really spooky kind of like creepy character. We're not really sure like what is up with her, but I also think that she could be a really good red herring and that she literally is just like dedicated to being a great, you know, housekeeper for the house and just um, is really into her job. I think that's also very possible. Then someone else said, I think Mrs. Baker, because she mentioned when introducing Kit and Lenora, she made a comment about not letting her use the typewriter or that she wasn't able to use it. I agree. There's something weird with that suicide note with the typewriter. And then someone else also said, I think Miss Baker pushed her to protect Lenora. That could also be true. We could also think that Mrs. Baker and Lenora are in cahoots of some kind. Is it possible that Mrs. Baker is Virginia? She's called Mrs. Baker, but she was never actually married, which we found out. Um, and it's more of just like a, a title to have her have some sort of prestige within the house. Um, so are they just like in cohorts or in cahoots about these murders? Um, I think that's also very possible because someone found out that, you know, Mary was going to go to the um, cops about what actually happened and also with the blood test with Carter. Mrs. Baker is a very likely suspect, I think, at this point. But like the first commenter said, I think it might be too obvious. Then I asked, why do you think Lenora isn't allowed to leave the house? And someone said Mrs. Baker is controlling her life since she's immobile. And this is just one more thing. I agree. And I'm wondering, honestly, how immobile Lenora actually is. I do think I, I don't know if I wrote this down or if I've said this yet. It's possible Lenora is Virginia and that the injuries that she has is a result of the hanging, but she survived. And then maybe Mrs. Baker is Lenora, potentially. There's a lot of theories. I am just going wacky with my theories, but I think that that's possible. Then someone else said, I think Miss Baker killed the family and she's keeping Lenora quiet. I completely agree. What if Lenora is Mrs. Baker or Mrs. Baker is Lenora and Virginia is that's actually a good theory. What if Lenora is Mrs. Baker? And remember how Mrs. Baker was like, you cannot call Lenora Lenora, call her Miss Hope. What if that's because she isn't Lenora? What if Mrs. Baker is Lenora? No one, hold on. And no one knows Mrs. Baker's first name, not even Carter. No one knows her first name. This is something. This is something. What if Mrs. Baker is Lenora? And that the injuries that pseudo Lenora has is because she is Virginia and now she's telling the story. Guys, I feel like that's it. I feel like that might be it. I'm scared. That's really good. Okay. Next, I asked, do you think the ghost of Virginia is haunting the house? 58% said yes. 42% said no. Now I'm thinking no. That, you know, the gray shape in the window really could have been anything, right? Um, could have been a ghost. There could still be some ghosty elements, some... Um, what is it called? Paranormal stuff going on, but I'm not sure anymore. Um, no one. And then I asked, I have some very specific Virginia thoughts. Do you have any others? And no one else did. But I think after this podcast episode, you guys might have some thoughts. 
Then I asked, are you trusting Carter? 58% said yes. 42% said no. I am more on the verge of trusting Carter. I think he has good intentions. I think we have to trust someone and I'm not trusting anyone else. So I'm on the, the plane of trusting Carter. Then I asked, do you think Carter could actually be related to Lenora? And it was 50-50. 50% said yes. 50% said no. I think yes. I think that it's very possible he could be. And I think that that would be a good twist. I think I would have voted yes. I didn't say, do you think he is? I said, do you actually think he could be related to Lenora? Then I just asked if you guys had any other pressing thoughts you wanted me to talk about. Someone said, Jesse is kind of random in all of this. I feel like she must tie into the murder somehow, but I don't know. I agree. And I just thought, what if Jesse is potentially the granddaughter of Lenora or some sort of relation to the family? I think that that is very possible. Someone said, Lenora is reminding me of Verity from Colleen Hoover. I agree. We all know. We actually, I don't want to say, I don't, we all don't know. If you haven't read Verity, you don't know. Um, but if you have read it, there are some definitely similar vibes with all of the the stuff that's going on here. Then someone said, in chapter 23, Carter says gate was left open on Monday after grocery delivery, but groceries come on Tuesdays. That's a very, very, very good catch. Um, really good sleuthing. And now I'm wondering if we shouldn't trust Carter. Um, what if he's trying to like pull one over and that he had someone come in to kill Mary or something like that? Or what if he's just confused? What if he was told the grocery deliveries were a certain day, but they're actually a different day? That's a really good catch and something I really need to think further about. Guys, and that is our halfway point. I hope you're all enjoying it as much as I am. I know that you are. We had some really lively discussions in my messages this week and a lot, a lot of responses to my poll questions. So thank you to all who answered. And for two weeks from now, that will be up on Monday, July 24th. And for that episode, all you got to do is finish the book. So just finish the book for Monday, July 24th, and be sure to be up on my Instagram at Grace's Reading Nook because I will be posting more, more poll questions, um, not this week, but the following week about the ending of the book, but probably not too many because I know most people would wait to read it. So it might just be very open-ended questions like, what did you think about the ending? What did you see it? Like, did you see it coming? Like, is it what you thought? Things like that. So don't be worried. I'm not going to post outright spoilers like that about the ending of a book on my stories. So don't be alarmed. But that is all I have for today. Thank you guys so, so much for listening. Like I said, be sure to go on over to Grace's Reading Nook for more updates about my life in the next two weeks, what books I'm reading and updates on The Only One Left and updates on what we'll be reading for August. Thank you all so much for listening and I'll talk to you all very soon. Bye guys. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.